we are going to be in James chapter 2, but I, I feel compelled to give a bit of an introduction because this is a big section. Just as there are distinct seasonal shifts that we can identify in Minnesota, from winter to spring, spring to summer, summer to fall, and fall to winter, the church also experiences theological shifts that are just as identifiable. In the past decades, the church has undergone a subtle but well-documented theological shift away from the Bible. I can't tell you how many people have come to Beacon of Hope and said, thank you for teaching the Bible. Um, I don't have the opportunity to get out to the churches around, but I'm thinking that there's a lot of churches that really don't teach God's Word anymore. Um, At least that's what I get from the reports of people coming here that want God's Word. And thank God uh, he gave us this building. We realize that there are many cringe factors in this building, but we own it. It's ours, and we'll work on those cringe factors as we're able but we do teach the Word of God here. In our Bible studies, in our Sunday schools, in our gatherings, and definitely from the pulpit. One evangelical commented that a renewal in social justice or missional holistic gospel represents the biggest shift in evangelicalism in the last century. The issues are manifold and as complex as a sin-fallen humanity might be expected to produce. But the problem is that too often, terms are not well-defined in this shift that has taken place. And therefore, sincere discussion and conversations become polarized quickly. Sides are drawn up real quick. Lines are drawn, sides are chosen, and what's left is only emotionally charged accusations demonizing the other side. Those on one side are accused of lacking compassion, being out of touch, not on the right side of history. Or if it's really intense, they're called bigots and hateful, racists. While the other side is accused of being radically liberal, leftists, Marxists, communists. Any hope of honest dialogue disintegrates because each side is trapped in their own silo. And this is taking place within the church. It really is. Such areas that divide people today are seen in the practice of partiality and racial matters. Partiality and economics. Partiality in gender, sexual lifestyles that are choices. Partiality in educational institutions and curriculums that are being taught. There is and there has been for at least the past couple of decades a problem for the evangelical church as forces have pushed and promoted these partialities right into the church. Some have even proposed that they are part of the gospel. And we need, we need to be crystal clear on what the gospel is and what it is not. Honestly, this is nothing short of the world encroaching into the church and sorting through the complexities like trying to separate the strands that make up a ball of cotton. And it's been my practice for many years 
that whenever I am confronted with situations that bring confusion to me, that I turn to Paul's admonition in Corinthian, to the Corinthian church, who uh, definitely were a group of believers who were well aware of confusing, uh, confusing issues in their church. And I remind myself of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 14.33, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. But of peace. The contrast of noun confusion is peace. Peace. And as we embark on this task of separating the strands in the cotton ball of societal, social, political, and economic issues pressing us to conform... We'll be trusting the author and finisher of our faith to lead us to peace and away from confusion. I'm passionate about what I'm going to be teaching on in this series. I'm very passionate about it because it is very, very now. It's right now. What I mean is that too many treatments of this topic, they get bogged down with unbiblical definitions or, or they only address one aspect rather than looking at the whole, say, racial partiality. And so you're all focused on the racial partiality, and you forget the other components that accompany that. Or social and economic disadvantages, which would include the whole matter of reparations for slavery. And by focusing on just one area, there's a tendency to blame all the difficulties on just that one area where It's bigger, people. It's bigger. And there are sources. There are roots to these disparities that we have in the church nowadays. Without becoming overly simplistic in my approach to this whole area of partiality and its many-headed manifestations within the church and American society at large, I believe that there are root issues, root issues. And that once identified they will aid us in looking at the individual elements that are causing so much division within the church and possibly maybe even affecting you. Let me lay out a couple of these root problems as I see it. There's a heart problem versus behavioral problems. When partiality is the basis of a complaint, it is more a matter of the heart than any outward behavior or societal response to it. It's a heart issue. So much of all of what's going on goes back to the heart. Secondly, for some reason or other, and I believe it's by design, there are only two groups nowadays, right? There is the oppressed and the oppressors. Looking at the various issues subsumed under what I have identified as showing partiality, people are assumed to be in one of only two camps. They're either the oppressed or the oppressor. Now, those terms have their root in the political and philosophical teaching of Marxism. They really do. You, you can't get away from that. And I'm not, you know, not going to get off on some political binge here. But we've got to understand what's coming down here. But partiality, partiality is an underlying pillar in the discussion of oppression. Okay? You've got to understand that. You see, all partiality is, it's preceded 
by judgment. And all judgment is based upon either truth or it's based upon the reasoning of men. You follow my line of thought? So you have philosophies and speculations and lofty things raised up against the knowledge of God. That is the the reasoning of men that they use as their basis for judgment, which leads to their position of partiality in racial relationships or economic strata and how you relate to one another. This is all just right in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. It's all right there, and it's all right here as we face things. Thirdly, the loss of personal responsibility due to group identity. Whenever the categories of oppressor and oppressed surfaces, the element of victimization is present. The oppressed are victimized by the oppressors. And with victimization, there is an overwhelming abandonment of personal responsibility. That is because the individual has been swallowed up by a group identity, the oppressed, with automatically transfers responsibility to the group away from personal culpability. Now, the individual is part of group victimization. And that's what they claim. We see this all the time when some refer to the experience of being black in America. As though every black person has the same exact life experience. I love America as a nation because it is made up of individuals. We are moving from an individualistic society to what is called, in anthropological terms, a collectivist society. I lived in a collectivist society in Indonesia. Individuals, you don't want to be an individual in in a collectivist society because you stand out. Even in the tribe that I worked in, you all had to sit on the same level. God forbid if you sat on the dividing piece of bamboo between rooms because that would lift yourself up higher than the rest of the people in the room. And so therefore, you are proud. You see how the collectivist society constantly pushes you into the group mentality. I remember being distressed back in 2000. I took a course at Bethel University on organizational leadership. And uh, I remember how dismayed I was that all that was being promoted were groups. And I thought, this is a class on organizational leadership. How many books are written on great groups? Right? Right? There are great leaders that are extolled for their courage, for their ingenuity, for their intelligence or whatever. Great groups? I don't know. And so we are moving into a collectivist society, and with that is the disappearance of personal responsibility. One man has said about that statement that being black in America, 
that a shared identity does not automatically equate to a common experience. Daryl Harrison, Just Thinking for Myself podcast. If you ever have a chance and you want to be educated in this whole groupthink thing and what's going on with CRT and every other thing and all the partiality that's going on, tune in to Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker in a little podcast called Just Thinking for Myself. Excellent, excellent material and very, very theologically sound. The American experience has always championed the individual, individual freedom, individual liberty, right? That's being trampled on right now. It's important to identify and admit that some of the charges brought against the evangelical church and various ethnicities are actual facts. There are bigots and there are racists in this world, but they are in every single culture that you can find. Every culture that I'm aware of is ethnocentric. Every single one of them. We are the best culture, they would say. But see, we're being taught and have been for many, many, many generations now that don't say that. Don't say that. That's pride. American exceptionalism? America first? How arrogant. How arrogant can you be? Don't be like that. (laughs) We're the only nation in the world that's saying that. Every other nation claims to be the best. So sad. But when taking the three above root issues that I talked about into consideration, there is hope in addressing and discussing the various manifestations of the realm of partiality without rancor, without name-calling, without demonizing the opposing viewpoint or the person holding them. One man has said, racism is sin. And sin is not a respecter of ethnicities because ethnicities are made up of human beings. And human beings have all been declared to be sinners. Here's the bottom line. There is individual culpability when it comes to partiality, at least according to the Bible. The Old Testament teaches us this. You can take down these addresses. Ecclesiastes 7.20. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on the earth who continually does good and who never sins. Romans 3.23. All, meaning all individual people, are fallen, have fallen short of the glory of God. They have all sinned. It's not collectively, but individually sinned. The problem is not the inequalities people experience in the human condition. Rather, it's the human condition itself. Okay? And God calls it sinful. Sin's the problem. So let's identify some key concepts within social, the social movements around us that, that actually loomed quite larger during our, our, our pre-COVID pandemic, and that was the social justice movement. We don't hear a lot about that anymore. It's still alive and well, believe me. But we don't talk that much about it anymore. Social justice. For some Christians, social justice encompasses everything from hunger relief to combating sexual trafficking 
to reducing carbon emissions, okay? Social justice, we've got to have justice. Secular definitions of social justice typically promote ideas of redistribution. It's very, very important for you to understand. I'm sorry it's kind of pedantic right now. I'm going to get to the text, and then it'll flow a little bit more easy, but I just need to get this out first before I get to the text today. So secular definitions of social justice typically promote ideas of redistribution in order to achieve equity. Ever heard that word? Equity? It's replaced equality, you know. In the uh, the UN's definition says something like this. Social justice may be broadly understood as the fair and compassionate distribution of the fruits of economic growth. Okay? There's that redistribution. A group called Act for Social Justice defines social justice like this. A socially just world means everyone's basic needs, food, housing, health care, education, jobs, social security, in a dignified way, treats people from every background with dignity and respect, supports the development of all people to their full potential. I like that. I, I take no issue with that. But then it goes on to say, guarantees equitable distribution of resources. That's where I stop. It makes sure all people are physically and psychologically safe and secure and ensures everyone has a voice in the decisions that affects them. Daydreams. (laughs) I've been in way too many cultures and seen way too many individual sinners. This will never happen on earth until the Lord Jesus Christ returns and rules with a rod of iron. It will not. Of course, when the idea of redistribution of economic wealth or resources comes into the picture, we've moved into the area of political philosophy. And that political philosophy promotes the idea that those who are economically successful somehow be compelled to share their success with those who are less successful to bring about an equitable outcome. This immediately creates two problems. Number one, it takes away the motivation to work hard to be successful. If what you have succeeded in achieving is taken from you and redistributed to those that have not been as successful in their achievements... Why would you work hard to achieve? Human nature, sinful nature, would say, hogwash. I'm not going to do this. Number two, it engenders an attitude of entitlement to equality with virtue of merely existing. I exist, therefore I should be equal. Okay? Leaving the question... What is just and what is fair? And that leads to our partiality, what we're going to study. The Bible addresses the matter of justice. It really does. In the Old and New Testaments. But some take passages out of the scripture and they use them often completely out of context to develop their views on social justice. And those with man-centered views of social justice often condemn the rest of the church for not being in line with the Bible. So first they take something out of the Bible, misinterpret it, 
or just take a section of it out of context, and then they use it to beat everybody else in churches that don't agree with them and say that you're just not being just. You're not being biblical, at least as they have misused and misinterpreted their understanding of social justice. Everything, all the background I'm giving you, I've been saying could come under the term recently identified as social justice. This term can be traced back to 1840. Just a little background for those of you that are interested. I'll make this quick. This term can be traced to 1840 where a priest in Sicily coined it, and then it was popularized through John Mill, who was a British philosopher and political economist in his book entitled Utilitarianism, 1861. A classical liberal, his views reflected those of William Goodwin, an earlier political philosopher and proponent of anarchism. Anarchism is the belief in the abolition of all government and organization of society on a voluntary cooperative basis. We saw anarchism last summer in Seattle, Minneapolis, most major cities. This man despised the aristocratic privilege of his day. Are we getting close now, folks? Goodwin said that every individual in society is entitled to share in the wealthy and in the wealth produced by society. He goes from individual to group real quick there. Every individual gets to share in the production of the society, the group. Well, excuse me, those are made up of individuals. Here's the oppressed oppressor paradigm again. Hence, the rich giving their wealth to help the poor is not a matter of charity, but one of justice. Kevin DeYoung reminds us regarding the trend in evangelical churches to engage in social justice. Quote, social justice often implies some form of command economy. (laughs) where the ruling class oversees an equal distribution of society's resources. So before we are very far into this topic, we're seeing that political and economic considerations are foundations to the concept of social justice. You cannot get away from it. And that's why I took that time to just give you a little bit of background to partiality. There's another graphic that I had that had a finger, big hand and a finger, holding down that one situation. But this is a great graphic to help you to understand. So our text today, in James chapter 2, 1 through 13, we've come to the third division in James. And it points to the importance of the believer's attitude towards others. And James continued with his theme of how do you identify a genuine believer, a true believer? Because there's a lot of posers out there. And he says it's displayed in their behavior. The way in which a true believer responds to trials in their life shows a practical application of their faith to those trials. They respond in a biblical way. 
The way a true believer faces temptation is different from the way in which a mere professing Christian faces temptations. And the response of the true believer to teaching, preaching, and hearing of God's word sets them apart from those who have spurious faith and are mere posers, those who pose as real Christians. You see, James is nothing if he's not practical. And so we've already studied those three areas, faith in response to trials in chapter 1, verses 2 through 11, faith in response to temptation in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, and faith in response to the word of God, chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. And now we're in chapter 2. And here James addresses the issue of faith in relation to social distinctions. How contemporary. How does a true believer respond to those around him who are different from him or her? I'm using him as generic. And how does their behavior display their faith? These are the down-to-earth questions that James sets about to answer in the first 13 verses of the chapter. And it's easily divided into three parts, and you have it in your outline. And believe me, we will not get through all three of those today. First, the rebuke against partiality in verses 1 through 4. The regrettable results of partiality, verses 5 through 11. And the requirement of impartiality. That's different. The requirement of impartiality in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2. So let's look at these first 13 verses. I'll read them and then we'll get started. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism or partiality. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, quote, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, quote, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, end quote. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality... You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
Let's pray. Father, as we look into just the first couple of verses, the first thoughts that James promotes here in chapter 2, we pray that you would open our eyes. Father, help us to relate to these truths and to bring them over into our world so that we might take them to ourselves and be transformed by the truths here so that we might grow thereby and that we might not be partial in our attitudes towards others. Father, help us because we need help. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, the rebuke against partiality in verses 1 through 4. This is the focus. There is a command given. He says, my brethren, do not hold your faith. Do not hold your faith. The command is, don't show favoritism. Incidentally, it's not don't judge. You know, there's a lot of people that think that Christians aren't supposed to judge. That is not true. That is not what the Bible says. It says, beware how you judge. Judge righteously or judge with a basis of truth behind your judgment. Nowhere in the scripture does it say, do not judge. That's taken out of context. Here, he says, don't show favoritism. And this is an important distinction to keep in mind. Okay. Now, it's important. He says, do not. And it's the very first thing to note that James is giving an order to the readers. It isn't something they can choose whether or not to do. This is something he is telling them to stop doing. They were in the process of doing this. (laughs) The imperative, the command is placed at the front of the sentence in the original language, so it could read like this. Do not, with respect for persons, be holding faith of our Lord Jesus Christ of the glory. The imperative is at the front for emphasis. Do not. With an attitude of personal favoritism or partiality, the phrase personal favoritism actually means partiality. It's one word in the original language. It means to have respect of persons. Or when called on to give judgment, they have respect of the outward circumstances of a person and not their intrinsic merits. And so it prefers, as a more worthy, one who is rich or high-born or powerful to another who does not have those qualities. In short, it is to show partiality. Personal favoritism gives preference to another person based solely on external circumstances like rank, appearance, wealth, or ethnicity. And in this way, the intrinsic value of the individual is bypassed, disregarded, or ignored completely, and the external becomes a focus and motive for judgment. Do you understand? Every human being, individually, is an image bearer of God, which provides intrinsic value for every human being, born and unborn. That's why we stand for life in the womb, from conception forth. Every human being, individually, is an image bearer of God, and thereby has intrinsic value as a person. And that's what 
being overlooked here because they're looking at the outward. Examples of impartiality in the Bible. Impartiality plays a big part in the Old Testament where it's deemed to be the ruling attitude in judgment. Judgment is called for and is nowhere prohibited in the Bible. As I mentioned, unjust judgment is prohibited, but not judgment that is fair, just, and righteous, that is in sync with truth. And where do we find truth? Thy word is truth. John 17, 17. Okay? Be sanctified by the truth. Thy word is truth. And so, if you want to just, let's do a little sword drill here. Look up in Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19. I'm doing this so that maybe you might underline these and return to them. <laughs> Leviticus 19, and I'd like to look at verse 15. If you shall do no justice in judgment, you shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. So there you get the fairness is not being partial to either the great or to the poor. You don't defer to one or the other. That is just and fair. And then... Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 117. I'm going to start in verse 16. Then I charged your judges. This is Moses speaking to the leaders, the elders. Then I charged your judges at that time saying, Hear the cases between your fellow countrymen and judge righteously. There it is again. Uh, judging is not condemned, but it's articulated to be judging righteously between a man and his fellow countrymen or the alien who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. Okay, don't miss the fact that there were small and great. <laughs> okay. Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always. The social justicians will say, no, we're going to do away with that. Everybody's going to be happy. Everybody's going to be equal. That is a dream. It's a pipe dream. It's not possible. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you, you shall bring it to me, and I will hear it. And he's laying out how to do righteous judgment. And he says, if you have one that's too difficult, bring it to me and I will judge it. You see, he didn't want to allow the fear of man or partiality to sway them in their judgment. And notice, the judgment belongs to God. Did you see that? You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. The judge is acting in God's stead. That's daunting. So they're not to rely on their own wisdom, but receive their direction for judgment from God's standards. Now, where do we get God's standards today? The Bible. And so if a lot of churches aren't teaching the Bible, where are their judgments coming from? Man's reasoning. 
It's the only place it can come from. And it's no longer just or fair. Second Chronicles chapter 19. This is interesting. Second Chronicles 19, beginning in verse 6, and I'll read verses 6 and 7. He said to the judges, Consider what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord. There it is again. You're in God's stead. Who is with you when you render judgment? Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you, and be very careful what you do. For the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. That too is very contemporary. (laughs) Very contemporary. And so we see that it is for God that the judgment is being made, not for man. And also, he'll have no part in unrighteousness, which is displayed when partiality motivates the judgment. Now, you can just take down these addresses. You don't have to look them up. Proverbs 24, 23 says, simply, to show partiality in judgment is not good. I like how clear the Bible is. It doesn't mince any words. It doesn't have to explain things. It's just not good. Romans 2.11, there is no partiality with God. Oh, I am so glad for that. Because when he reached down and saved me, he pulled me out of a cesspool, right? In fact, the truth is he pulled you out of a cesspool too. Ephesians 6.9, God is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Colossians 3, 23 through 25, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done. Personal culpability. And that without partiality. So see, it cuts both ways. It's not just good for the poor, bad for the rich. That's the oppressed oppressor paradigm. The poor that does wrong will be punished. The rich that does wrong will be punished. The poor that does right will be rewarded. The rich that does right will be rewarded. There's no partiality with God and with his truth. And so when you're judging a situation, you need to judge it on the basis of truth. The contrast is clear in verse 1. Judging with partiality is set against genuine faith. Okay, go back to James Back to James chapter 2. And it says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. So now James is, is, is bringing this whole attitude of partiality to personal faith. Okay? Genuine faith. Hold faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. The contradiction is clearly laid out. General, uh, genuine faith does not judge with partiality. So you can mark anybody that's dealing in a, a partial way with someone, looking down their snoot at the poor and praising the rich, they're not genuine believers. That's how clear-cut James is cutting it here. He's like John in this, black and white. All such acts of calculated favoritism are inconsistent with their acknowledgement 
and identity as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He says, hold your faith. To hold is to have or to possess faith. This addresses those who are focused, have focused their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are true believers. The original language states, our Lord Jesus Christ of the glory, which is a clear reference uh, to the predominantly Jewish population that James is writing to of the Shekinah glory of God displayed in the Old Testament, which always signified his presence. Again, judgments are not made by a man. The judgment is based in God's truth, and so it's in God's stead that you're making the judgment, and therefore you should be careful. And just as a reminder here, as James breaks down uh, chapter, uh, uh, verse 1, he says, faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so he's bringing that glory, Shekinah glory, the presence of God, into the judgment that is being made. And you can look all over through the Old Testament and find that the Shekinah glory meant the presence of God. So James is presenting Jesus as the glory of God in the midst of his people. Simply put, James is telling the believers that they cannot hold the faith of Jesus Christ, who is the very presence and glory of God, and be partial. It just doesn't fit. It's completely incompatible. Now, then he goes on in verses 2 through 4, and he gives us an illustration of it, an example of, so that they could understand and that we can understand. He says, For if a man comes into your assembly or your gathering with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, You sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor guy, yeah, Whatever. Go. Shh, shh, go. The assembly here is actually a Greek word that looks like synagogue. Uh, It's not talking about the synagogue of the Jews. Um, It's just James' way of talking about where you worship. It's a meeting place for religious purposes. Believers met together consistently for worship in a specific place. It also shows that there was a carryover from the Jewish synagogue in which there were some seats that were special and some even had footstools. Now, these were not churches. These were homes, okay? Because for the first 150 years, there were no churches as buildings. They met in homes. But even in homes, in a large room, there were certain seats where wealthy sat. And they even had some footstools. The picture of the rich man. He's got gold rings. Literally, this means gold-fingered because in that culture, a man showed his wealth by wearing gold rings on all his fingers of his left hand. This is not far-flung from Oriental culture. In Indonesia, they wear their wealth on their person. It's safer that way. Can't be robbed from their house, right? So here, James is telling us that these rich have gold covering every knuckle. They're gold-ringed, gold-fingered people. An easily observed external thing, you come in with gold all over. Mary and I used to like to go to the malls and just sit and watch people. It was cheap. 
<laughs> and then we just kind of watch, whoa, that one is dripping with wealth, that one, you know. And then sometimes you'd see people and you knew they, externally like they didn't look rich, but you knew they were rich. I can't, can't explain it, okay? And what were we doing? We were judging people, weren't we? But, I, you know, we're sinful. What can I say? <laughs> and then you'd see poor, poor people. I got to tell you about an experience that I had down in California because California is the craziest place in the world. So I was visiting for a shepherd's conference, which happens every March, and um, I was visiting from Minnesota, so I was staying at a hotel. Now, don't judge me, okay? They get special rates at the Hyatt Regency in Valencia. And so I was at the Hyatt Regency. Woo! And I get in the elevator, and this guy comes in the elevator, and I swear, he stunk to high heaven. His hair hadn't been washed forever. I think he was trying to go for dreads and was at the beginning stages. And he, he was wearing a pair of cut-off jeans that were frayed, skinny legs, and barefoot, and an old T-shirt that had holes in it, and like I said, just stunk. And we got up to his floor, and he got off and, and walked out, and I pushed the button, stop, and down. And I went down, I went to the concierge, and I said, um, I don't know, you know, but this guy got on the elevator and he was just like, oh. And he said, oh yeah, he's a movie producer, don't worry about him. <laughs> well, I made a judgment call, didn't I? On the externals that I saw and experienced. I mean, forgive me, I did not confess that sin. <laughs> it's just like, what, what is that about? But, wow. It's so easy to look at a person with an evil motivation and judge them. It's, it, we do it all the time, people, all the time. And James is teaching us about that. He says you can't hold the faith of Jesus Christ who is the very presence and glory of God and be partial. So that rich man. And then you've got, he's got fine clothes on too. It's an outward display of his wealth. Fine means brighter with ornamentation. And, and, and this is marked contrast to the poor one who had no rings and whose clothes were dirty. The, the dirty clothes, the poor man, the working man, and in that day could only afford one set of clothes, and he'd wear that set of clothing everywhere until it was tattered and unfit to wear any longer. I know what that's like. The Taliabo tribal people did that. They'd have a T-shirt and a pair of jeans, and they would wear it until it literally got holes in it and started getting tattered, and they'd finally get a new T-shirt and a pair of shorts. <laughs> kidding you. Sometimes it would be months. Same t-shirt, same short. Now they washed them. I mean, they didn't not wash themselves and so forth, but um, they would wear the same thing over and over and over and over again. We very seldom do that because we're very rich in America. Even the poor amongst us is more wealthy than many people in the world. The contrast between these two men is clear, isn't it? And partiality was observed Verse 4, look at what it says. You have not made distinctions, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Now he's using that illustration right there. He says the rich and the poor come in and you actually acted upon it. That's where the evil motivations are. Why are you giving a good seat to the rich guy and not really considering the poor guy? What was your motivation behind that? 
And incidentally, this distinctive that we're talking about is the Greek word diakino, diakino, and it means to separate or make a distinction, discriminate, to prefer. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, who makes you to differ from one another? Well, in the end, it's God, right? So the special attention to the rich one was sit here at this good place. Partiality is shown due to the outward external display of wealth, and they get special treatment. He's ushered to a seat of prominence, or at least a seat in keeping with his external stature. It's called a good place. Now stand over there or sit next to my footstool. The contrast is obvious. Whatever, just move along, please. In both instances, the person in the example used partiality. He viewed each one with partiality, and his judgment was based on externals only. Does the Bible have anything to say about the way we as genuine believers are to receive one another? You bet it does. In Romans 15, 5 through 7, it says, Accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. You know, this partiality, a lot of times we think it's just the rich look down on the poor. Uh uh. I'm sorry. I was raised on the east side of St. Paul here. And we viewed the rich as fat cats. They can be every bit as judgmental, being poor, of the rich as the rich are of the poor. And I think all James is saying, don't let that happen in your church. Right? So let's not let that happen in our church. That's what James is getting at here. Romans 14 1 and verse 3 says, accept the weak one because God has accepted him. Not based on externals, but rather using God's acceptance as a measuring stick. Evil motives. Their judgment and discriminating between the rich and the poor was more than just making a casual observation. The motivation behind their behavior is blatantly exposed by James as being evil. To be evil means injurious, destructive, vicious, not in keeping with the character and nature of the one that they claimed as their savior. And that's what he's trying to tell them. You guys are not acting in sync with who you are in Christ Jesus. Now, next week, I'm going to bring the truth of this matter of partiality into our own time. I'm going to identify the many ways partiality is being practiced today. And I think it's going to be insightful for you. I think it's going to be helpful for all of us. And then it can help us to protect ourselves even in the context of Beacon of Hope that we don't do that. And in doing that, my friend, we will become a much more winsome congregation of people gathering together. That when people come to visit... They'll say, man, those people are so accepting. They received me. A lot of people come into a church and nobody even says hi to them. Do you know that? That is the honest truth. They can come many weeks and nobody even addresses them or talks to them. We do not want to be that kind of a church. 
You see, the evil perpetuated by partiality is everywhere present in our society and culture, and it has increased exponentially over the past couple of years. Okay? I don't know if you've noticed, but the whole racial thing has switched. Now, all of the white people are the oppressors. And the black people, excuse me, are the oppressors, and the white people are oppressed, right? You can't win for losing. Because you're white, you're privileged. Because you're privileged, you are bad. So what are you supposed to do? Now, you can take the converse and say, well, black people have felt like that for years and years and years, and what about slavery? I'm not denying any of that. I'm just saying both are wrong. Quit it. That's preferential treatment. Now they're starting to have, you know, groups of people that are segregated in the colleges and universities that will only meet together. In fact, they even have different graduation ceremonies, one for black people, one for Hispanic people, one for white people. What happened to America? (laughs) The sad thing is, that's starting to happen in churches. That's starting to happen in churches, not in this church. Not as long as I'm in this pulpit and I'm your pastor. Okay? So. I'll get out while the getting's good. Thank you. <laughs> Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word that is always so clear. And Father, oftentimes we read past it so quickly. It's become so familiar to us that we don't take it to heart. Forgive us for that and help us to take these things to heart. And God, may we be able to grow by it. That's the big thing. Lord, sometimes some things that come from the pulpit, from the truth of your word are new. They're shocking to us. They're challenging to us because we've thought differently. Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, please help us to receive the new truth and to incorporate it into our lives and begin to live it out because that's what progressive sanctification is all about. That's what biblical Christianity is about until we're transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And Father, we know that that won't come to completion until we see you as you are and we look forward to that day. Help us to grow, Father, we pray in Jesus' name.